About six weeks ago, Ashley Diaz's lungs gave out. She was rushed to the Cleveland Clinic, and she was told she'd need new lungs to survive. Ashley has cystic fibrosis. She's 26. So this didn't come as a total surprise. But what has been surprisingly hard for her to deal with, life-changing for her, actually, is that she can't speak. She's on a breathing machine. She has a tracheostomy tube in her neck. So basically, from the moment Ashley was told she was facing death, she's had to depend on her mother to speak for her. She just assumed with the machine she would breathe normal, but she's not. She still struggles when she wakes up. Ashley mouths words like this to her mom to communicate, or she'll type a text into her phone and hand it to her mom, Mary Lynn. When I ask Ashley what she's into, she types to me, talking, friends, and shopping, in that order. Talking. It's her favorite thing to do. As much as I text, I never seem to get my point across, and that, that's really frustrating. Ashley shakes her head as her mom says that last part. That's really frustrating. Not to say that it isn't, just that she didn't type those words. Her mom added that part, which seems to be really frustrating to Ashley. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm fine. Are you Ashley's mom? I am. The only time I see Ashley make a real effort, an enormous effort, actually, a communication, is when the doctor comes in. Had a quiet night? Got some sleep? Anything else? Because otherwise it's status quo. We're waiting. At this point, Ashley pulls out a marker from somewhere and writes in enormous big caps as if it is the only thing she has ever wanted a voice to say. She writes, any news on lungs? No. You will be the first person to know. Okay? Okay. It'll happen. It'll, it'll happen. Thank you. It, it's a long wait, and I know it's frustrating. Everyone always feels this way when they're waiting for long, but it, it, it'll happen. All right? Have a great day. Take it. Nice meeting you. You too. But he, he wouldn't say it's going to happen. So you have to, you can't be discouraged. They all feel as confident as they can. So you do too. You have to. Okay? It's going to happen. At this point, Ashley doesn't text or mouth anything back to her mom. She doesn't even look at her. She just settles back into waiting. Waiting for a peculiar bureaucratic system to give her life. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe Waltz. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Friday, May 18th. Today's show How Do You Decide Who Gets Lungs? When you think about it, the situation Ashley is in and organs in general present a pretty classic economic problem. They are a scarce resource like oil or water. Lots more people want organs than there are organs available. But with oil or water, we have a mechanism to distribute those things. We have markets you can buy and sell water. Ashley can't buy lungs. We don't allow people to buy and sell organs. And whether or not we should, that's a whole debate we are not going to get into on this show, except to say that without markets, without money exchanged, it just gets really complicated to determine who gets what. Right now, anyone with a couple bucks can buy a gallon of gas. If that, if that wasn't the case, like how would you allocate gas? How would you decide who got gasoline? And this is the situation we find ourselves in today when it comes to organs. So that's the show today. You can't buy them. There aren't enough to go around, which means doctors have to sit down and come up with a set of rules to decide how to divvy them up. I have 124 patients right now on my list. 
This is Ashley's doctor, Dr. Marie Budev. She's the head of lung transplants at the Cleveland Clinic, and she's a person accustomed to delivering morbid information, sort of as if she's listing off her least favorite cities to vacation. How many of those 124 will get lungs? Depends on who's dying out there, what organs are available. When someone does die, Dr. Budev gets a call, and the first thing she'll ask on that call is the circumstances. Car accidents, she says, they can be great for hearts and livers, but not so much for lungs. The very best thing for lungs? Either gunshot wounds to the head, that sort of thing, or or strokes or bleeding. But we do take motor vehicle accident patients as long as their lungs aren't severely contused. Dr. Budev is a person intimately acquainted with how difficult it is to design an allocation system for organs that does not rely on money, a system that doesn't have price like a market does at the very center of it. She's spent years trying to come up with an alternative to a market, but she says it's incredibly difficult to do, even when everyone involved is trying to do the best thing. For instance, take the case of what happened with the system for livers. Here's Jason Snyder, an economist at UCLA. So before 2002, the way that you would get a liver is that you'd have to get on a waiting list. And the waiting list was ordered in terms of the sickest person first. So they were trying to, they were trying to get the sickest people the livers first. To do this, they'd look at how sick people were. They'd do blood tests and look at whether or not they were in the ICU, which seems sensible. So the ICU, if you were in the intensive care unit, it essentially just moved you higher up the list. You got more priority. You got more priority. And that was how livers were distributed for a long time? Yes, up until March 1st, 2002. March 1st, 2002, the small group of medical professionals who make the rules changed the rules slightly. They said, you know what? Forget the ICU. We will just measure your blood, bilirubin levels, creatinine, things like that. And we won't look at whether or not you're in the ICU. And basically, immediately after that change, everything was different. The ICU got a lot emptier. In the year leading up to the change, to February 2002, about 24% of the patients who got liver transplants were in the ICU prior to transplant. And the next year, after the change, it went down to about half that, 13%. It's a really striking response at precisely the point the policy was implemented. So doctors were putting people in the ICU who didn't need to be in the ICU? Yes, that's what it appears. I mean, let's face it, I have patients, I want my patients to get transplanted. When you talk to liver doctors about this time, they say, yeah, that's what was happening. This is Dr. William Carey. He's a liver doctor at the Cleveland Clinic. And he says it helped your patients' chances if you put them in the ICU. I care more about my patients than I care about patients in another city in another part of the country. And it clearly is in the interest of my patient to get transplanted however I can make that happen. Dr. Carey says he will always be biased towards his patients. He knows that. And he rejects the idea that any liver doctor actually set out to consciously game the system in their patients' favor. He says, you always believe you're acting on your best medical judgment. And in fact, when I asked Dr. Carey, did you at your transplant center put people in the ICU who didn't need to be there? I think not. I think not. But I would say that nobody thinks that they are doing that. We're playing exactly by the book, but that other center across the state, across the region, they're not playing by the book. And I'm sure everyone said the same thing about us, and, you know, it's just one of those, one of those things. 
All this, for me, I have to say, raises the question, what is a doctor's job? Like, we often say a doctor's job is to do no harm. But in this case, doctors acting in the best interest of their patients causes problems. Jason Snyder, the UCLA economist I talked to, says it's pretty clear that in this case, doctors acting in their patient's best interest causes harm. Because consider a doctor trying to get their patient higher up on the liver list by putting them in the ICU. This has the potential to distort who gets a liver, that if a doctor puts one person high on the list, uh, the other uh, individuals have to wait longer. And quite often what happens in the world of liver transplant is that it's not just an issue of waiting. Um, Many, many people die on the waiting list. So we're actually talking about a doctor making a decision that helps their patients and potentially kills other people's patients. Uh, absolutely. I think it's um, it's a really tough problem. We need doctors to be involved in how organs should be divvied up. Doctors know how to tell who's sick. They know who's going to get sicker without a transplant, how quickly that's going to happen, how the organ's going to do in a given patient's body. So we need doctors' consultation in the divvying up of organs, just the same way we need doctors to decide if we need an exam or a surgery. But of course, there is scarcity in organs and throughout our healthcare system. There are not enough organs, just like there's not limitless money or doctor's time or drugs or high-end technology. By throwing people in the ICU to get a liver who don't need to be in the ICU, in addition to defeating the whole purpose of the system, that wastes a lot of money. The ICU is incredibly expensive. When the liver numbers came out, they were kind of hard to ignore. Dr. Budev, the lung doctor, told me around this time the lung people realized they had a similar problem. In the same way the ICU got you bumped up on the list for a liver, for lungs it was all about time. So the longer that you were on the list for lungs, the higher up you were. It didn't really matter how sick you were, just how long you'd been waiting. So there was an easy way to help a patient out and bump them up the list. If you're a doctor, you sign them up early, even before they needed a transplant. I think we all, we all of us got caught up in this system also saying, well, you know what, as soon as someone gets referred to us, whether they're really sick or not, maybe we should just get them on the list. And so that's how we were trying to overcome the system. So we were all putting all these patients that were not sick enough on a list just so that they could accrue time in case they did become sicker. Dr. Budev says they all knew the system was flawed in many ways, but she says it was hard to recognize part of the problem was us, doctors, and their desire to do what's right for patients. Dr. Budev says, you can't stop doctors from doing that. That's their job. That patient is everything. And that's why I think we can't be trusted. What's interesting about what you're saying is you're, you're saying you need to be controlled. We do. So in 2005, the lung doctors followed the liver doctors, and they put into place a system that would, among many other things, try to control them, control their desire to always do what is in the best interest of the patient right in front of them. They devised a new scoring system. They had new objective rules to rank everyone on the waiting list, all based on medical data, data that could not be manipulated by doctors, like how much oxygen a patient's on or how far he or she can walk. The scoring system is much fairer. It is based on objective data. There is nothing subjective about the score. There's no way for me to manipulate that score to put that patient higher on the list. There is really no way to game the system. 
And this is the system that Ashley Diaz finds herself in today. And it's worked out pretty well for her. She's near the top of the list. But Ashley's small, which means she probably needs pediatric lungs. And even at the top of the list, pediatric lungs don't become available very often. As Dr. Budev was explaining this to me, I asked her, what if Ashley wasn't near the top of the list? What if the system worked out worse for her? There's really nothing you could do to help her? And Dr. Budev says, the system doesn't really allow that. But then she also said, okay, no matter how hard you try to design a system that is completely resistant to manipulation, there's always some room. I guess there is room for you to put everybody you have on 100% oxygen and tell them not to walk a certain number of feet and to walk less because that will increase the score. I would hope that no one would do that. Do people do that? I'm sure people have. Uh, I think human nature sometimes, in the interest of a patient, you're going to be tempted that you don't do that? We don't, and most people don't. The reason why is we're, we're audited very closely for each patient we list. Do you think you would if you weren't audited? Um, I would be tempted to. For a system like this to work, you need people who understand, like Dr. Budev does, that she gets tempted. And you also need auditors to keep in check the tempted people. <laughs> and that is only half the battle, or it's actually like a tenth of the battle, because you still have to figure out what the rules should actually be. You know, do you want organs to go to the sickest people, as they do with livers, or do you want it to go to the people who have been waiting the longest on the list? Does that seem more fair? Or maybe you want to give the best organs to the youngest patients? You want to maximize the life of the organ? These questions, this is where the debate continues today in all organs. It's really hard to know who gets something, like lungs, when you don't want to let people pay for it, when you don't have prices, when you don't have a regular market. Before we end the show today, David, we have a special announcement about our baby Toxie. Our toxic acid that we bought is sort of an experiment a while back. She has a new home. She is now on display in a museum, <laughs> an exhibit that's opening Monday at the Museum of the City of New York. A curator came by the other week and, and took custody of her. And uh, we're going to go to the opening, which is on Monday. If you're in New York City and you want to come, we'll post information on the blog. The blog, of course, npr.org slash money. And you can always email us at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Waltz. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. <laughs>